When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta, as well as the volume editor for each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Plural fusions. When someone comes with a pleural fusion, I'm sure they're going to have some shortness of breath. This shows a right middle and right lower lobe density. So my first job on the board is to prove it's a pleural fusion to begin with. How do I do that? Well, certain there's certain things you could do is a lateral decubitus chest x-ray, make them lay on their side, but there may not be any layering and it still could be in the fusion. If the fusion is loculated, you could order a CT of the chest, but once again, it may be more helpful getting a CT after you drain the fluid, if that's what it is. The most practical answer on the boards, if you want to prove this density is an effusion, is ultrasound. And ultrasound is good not only for diagnosis, but when you want to actually do a, a diagnostic or therapeutic thoracentesis. Here's a CT of the patient. You can clearly see the pleural fusion. And once you get the pleural fusion, you want to know, well, what is it from? You want to put in one or two categories. Is it a transudate or exudate? We use LIGHTS criteria using the effusion to serum protein, effusion to serum LDH, and of course, the LDH in the effusion compared to two-thirds of the upper limit of the serum. And to be a transudate, all three of LIGHTS criteria have to be negative. To be an exudate, only one has to be positive. So in biostatistics terms, LIGHTS criteria for transudates is very specific. LIGHTS criteria for exudates, it's very sensitive. Why is it so sensitive? Because you don't want to miss the two most common causes of exudates, which are always going to be infection and malignancy. And that could definitely kill you on the spot. Transudates, think about problems with the oncotic and hydrostatic pressure like CHF, cirrhotic, nephrotic, atelectasis can do it. Pulmonary embolism can give you a transudate. Exudates, infection and malignancy. And of course, look at this, PE. PE can give you both a transudate or an exudate. And when you want to put it in a chest tube, of course, if you do a diagnostic and pus comes out, pus means empyema. If you have a complicated loculated effusion, you would consider placing a chest tube to help drain it. And sometimes if it doesn't drain, we would think about putting in the chest tube things like thrombolytics or DNA in the chest tube itself to help break down those loculations. Once you get the pleural fluid, you want to order things to help make the diagnosis. I love a cell count, meaning that not just the cell count, but the differential. Is it lymphocytic predominant? Is this neutrophilic predominant? A lymphocytic exudate, you always worry about malignancy and maybe even pleural TB in the right clinical setting. Glucose, you always want to make, if the glucose is very low, it may be things like empyema or bad infection or even in some cases malignancy. Even rheumatoid arthritis can give you a rheumatoid pleural fusion with a very low glucose. pH should normally be the, the same pH as the serum. The lower the pH, the more chance of something really nasty happening in the pleural space like infection. 
So these are some of the, the chemistries and values you want to get from the pleural fluid. I have one question on pleural fusions. 62-year-old male complains of a non-productive cough and weight loss and 20-pound weight loss over the last three to four months. He is noted to have a hoarse voice, okay, big-time smoker, 50-pack year history, but he only quit recently. On exam, BMI is 19. Auscultation reveals decreased breast sounds with dullness of percussion on the right. There's positive ergophony, which is E to A, decreased tactile fremdis when you say 99, and a prolonged expiration. So these are the findings of a pleural effusion. And what happened? They do a CT of the chest, and there it is. There's a huge pleural effusion, and uh-oh, they saw a mass. So what do you think this mass is secondary to in this smoker? Answer. What do you think this pleural fusion is? Malignant effusion. So, but you don't know for sure. So they did a thoracentesis and the fluid is a lymphocytic exudate, almost guaranteeing it's going to be a malignant pleural fusion. But uh-oh, cytology is negative for a fusion. Oh my God, what are you going to do? Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in evaluating this patient? So frustrating. We've got some good answers over here. You know, a PET scan at this point, you don't know what the pleural effusion is from. You just can't do a PET scan. Uh, closed pleural biopsy is usually when you think of pleural TB. You know, in this case, with the smoking, the mass, it's probably not going to be pleural TB at this time. So it really comes down to doing an EBUS or repeating the pleural fluid. This is a great question for your boards. So the right answer here is going to be repeat the thoracentesis. Why? Is because if you do an EBUS, you're going to go right here and you're going to needle the primary. And remember, for any malignancy, there are two most important things in evaluation, evaluating a malignancy. Number one is staging. So when we talk about staging, you always want to stage it to the highest level, not the lowest, but the highest. So if you go for the primary, this is going to be stage one. If you go for the pleural fluid, it's going to be stage four. So already you could have the talk and say, hey, that you're not going to be a surgical candidate and figure out what's going on. So one reason to go for the pleural fluid. Also, when we talk about, you know, the second part of any cancer is going to be getting the diagnosis too. And you can do that through the pleural fluid. Now, the second thing is that when we talk about doing a thoracentesis, you know, it's easy. You could do it at the bedside. And after the first thoracentesis, the yield of a positive cytology is like 60, 65%. That goes up to the high 80s if you repeat it. And then it goes into the 90s if you do it a third time. After the third attempt, if you can't get it, well, you need to reevaluate. But because of all these things, including staging, ease of the procedure, the high yield on the second attempt, you definitely would think about doing a thoracentesis. And you have my answer here. So great job on those who picked D. Larix catheter, we usually think about this indwelling catheter mainly for malignancy. The scary thing is I got approved for non-malignant infusions, but this is something that if a patient feels clinical benefit after you do a thoracentesis and they're like, oh, I can breathe better, you may want to consider putting in a Plurix catheter. And of course, many things factor in, patient support, economics and everything, but something to think about. We'll do one quick bonus case. Uh, this patient came in here, and this is someone who came in here who had some shortness of breath acutely, had a proliferative chest pain, had difficulty breathing, and had this density. And it almost kind of looks like there is a pleural fusion here, but, you know, we couldn't 
It wasn't really confirmed. It tapped it out and everything like that. Or it could be a pleural fusion. So because the patient was short of breath and discomfort, a chest tube was placed at bedside. All right. And they repeated the chest x-ray after the chest tube was placed. And here's the chest tube down here. But it kind of looks like the density really didn't change too much. The patient actually was in a lot of discomfort. So they you know, consulted me to see what was going on. And there was no improvement. So what was the diagnosis? Why didn't the patient actually improve after the chest tube was placed? Well, this is the classic diagnosis of chest tube in the spleen. So here is the spleen over here. No teaching point here is anytime you want to confirm a pleural effusion, what is the best, easiest way to do at the bedside? Please use that ultrasound. Very good. So let's talk about ARDS. When we think about ARDS, how do we diagnose it? There's going to be definitely the classic definition is thinking about doing a classic PF ratio, which is the PAO2 over the FIO2. And my PO2 is about 100, 100 right now. I divide that when I'm breathing room air. So 100 divided by 21% gives you 500. But when you talk about someone with respiratory distress, your PAO2 goes down, their FIO2 goes up. So, of course, when you do the math, that number gets lower and lower and lower. So, classically, ARDS is defined as a PF ratio less than 200. You would classically get bilateral chest X-ray findings. And classically, they would do a Swan-Gans catheter, which we don't do nowadays just to make the diagnosis. But the key thing is the wedge is going to be normal to low because what mimics ARDS is CHF. And you want to make sure it's not the heart that's going to be involved. What causes ARDS? Definitely aspiration can do aspiration pneumonias, uh, any type of lung infection, indirect causes. A most very, very common thing is sepsis. And there are newer definitions for ARDS. And the main thing is, is that you don't need to do a invasive pulmonary swan glance to make the diagnosis. And when we think about ARDS now, based upon the PF ratio, we could say that there's mild ARDS, there's moderate ARDS, and in some cases there could be severe ARDS, depending on how low that PF ratio is going to be. So what really causes the ARDS? The truth is we don't know. There's no prophylaxis for it. And when you think about this image I have right here, take your hand right here and think of your hand like an alveoli. And what happens with ARDS is that this alveoli is filled with fluid. It is just filled with fluid. And not only is it filled, it's almost shrunken up like this. So you can imagine this side of the alveoli here that it's shrunken up and it's filled with all this inflammatory fluid so you can't get diffusion of oxygen into the capillaries. And that's what ARDS is. It's a collapsed alveoli filled with inflammatory fluid. How did this fluid get here? Well, the answer is, is that it's because of the fact that when these capillaries become very friable, it releases these proteins into your interstitium, sucking all that fluid into it. Please don't go around biopsying people with ARDS. That sounds like a bad idea. If you do, it does show diffuse alveolar damage. Here's that diagram of the pulmonary capillaries. And you can see in ARDS, those pulmonary capillaries become very friable, releasing these proteins into the interstitium. And these proteins are on cotic pressure. They suck fluid into them. And that fluid gets sucked in the interstitium and it drowns in the alveoli. And that's how the fluid got there. Here's a classic example of someone who has a right lower lobe pneumonia, probably from aspiration. And what happens in a few days, in this case, look at this. This is going to be a 
chest x-ray of someone who met ARDS criteria. Number one, they're intubated. And that means anyone on the board exams, we only, only, only manage ARDS when you're on the vent. So that's why he's intubated. And when you look at the lungs itself, remember ARDS is a heterogeneous lung disease. There's good lung, bad lung. There's good alveoli, there's bad alveoli. And you could tell some of this lung is well aerated still. Some of the lung is poorly aerated. And when we manage ARDS on the ventilator, what are we trying to save? We're trying to save the good lung. We're trying to save the good lung because the bad is bad already. So if I were to only show you this chest x-ray with no history, no physical, no PF ratio, no nothing, and I said, hey, is this ARDS? Your answer is, I don't know. Because if I said this patient had HIV with a CD4 count less than 200, this is going to be what? PCP pneumonia. If I said this patient came from Ghana, India, and had a positive PPD or a positive quant gold, this is what? Millary TB. If someone had a BNP greater than 2000 and an EF of 15%, this is what? CHF. So you definitely need to meet all the criteria to call it ARDS. So how do we treat ARDS? Of course, treat the underlying cause like the sepsis. And we talk about medications. Well, steroids are always controversial. In the beginning, we used to give steroids to everyone. Then a study came out in 2006 that said, uh-oh, if we gave steroids too late, it's going to increase the risk of death. So we stopped doing it. Then another study came out in 2007 that said, well, if you're going to give steroids, give it early in ARDS, and it may decrease duration of mechanical ventilation. And this led to us to think that ARDS has stages. There's going to be the exudative stage where when you give anti-inflammatory meds like steroids, they're going to have more an effect versus when you give it later in the course, well, it's already fibrotic. It's not going to do much. And that's why it's scary to give steroids because sepsis is one of the main causes of ARDS. And you don't want to just give steroids to everyone with sepsis. So in regards to ventilator management, everyone, there are two things on the ventilator you need to know. The one thing that decreases mortality in ventilator management, mortality in ventilator management is low tidal volume. How low? Somewhere between six to eight mLs per kilogram, six to eight. So you want to work your way down. Why? Is because remember there's good lung and bad lung. You really worry about the good lung getting damaged because when you give big tidal volumes, all that airflow will go to the good alveoli and it's going to what? Pop. So you give low tidal volumes so we won't cause volutrauma and barotrauma. But because we're giving low tidal volumes, it's not comfortable for the patient. And you're going to get a lot of physiological problems giving low tidal volumes, such as inducing a respiratory acidosis. We call that permissive hypercapnia. So remember that. But we give low tidal volumes because it reduces mortality based on the ARDSNET trial, the alveoli trial that show that low tidal volumes improve survival. So when someone comes on the ventilator, definitely think about giving low tidal volumes first. If they were to ask you what is the best way to oxygenate someone with ARDS, the best way to oxygenate someone with ARDS is using PEEP, positive and expiratory pressure. And why does that help out? Because I assume these patients are going to be on 100% oxygen. And by giving PEEP, which is kind of like, imagine you breathing out of a ventilator tube, think of a valve that closes at the end of expiration. And when that happens, it backs up pressure and it opens up the alveoli. Of course, you just can't crank up the PEEP as much as you want. You definitely got to monitor that because that in itself can cause barotrauma. And you monitor that to peak and plateau pressures. And with that being said, let me do this question with you. 63-year-old woman is admitted to the hospital for septic shock, secondary to community-acquired pneumonia after antibiotics, fluids, and pressors. 
Her condition stabilizes. However, she subsequently develops ARDS and is intubated. Okay. Her O2 requirements increases until she's receiving 100% oxygen. Vent settings are in volume controlled, continuous mandatory mode. She has a respiratory rate of 22, low tidal volume, 6 mLs per kilogram of tidal of ideal body weight. She's on 100%. PEEP is 5. Uh-oh, the peak and plateau pressures are 25 and 22, respectively. She has low-grade, normal tensives. She's definitely uh, tacky. Skin is cool. There's no JVD. Heart sounds are rapid but regular. Otherwise, unremarkable. Diffuse crackles are heard on pulmonary exam. There is no edema. The remainder of the physical exam is non-contributory. ABG shows a pH of 7.31, CO2 that's elevated. This is permissive hypercapnia. I did it because I gave low tidal volumes. And uh-oh, her PaO2, despite being on 100%, is 54. That's super hypoxic. Chest x-ray shows extensive patchy areas of pacifications. For time's sake, I'll give you the answer. Which of the following is the most appropriate management of this patient? Well, you can't get lower on the tidal volume. You know, you're not going to decrease the respiratory rate in this case. Starting inhaled nitric oxide will make you help out with the oxygenation, but it's not the next best thing to do. It really comes down to, do you want to do a prone position or do you want to increase the PEEP? These are things that will help out with oxygenation because that PaO2 of 54 is very low. And even though I know we're going through a pandemic right now and I'm proning everyone that comes to my ICU, you know, what's a simple thing to do first is probably just, you know, increase the PEEP a little bit. And the peak and practope pressures are normal. So the answer here is going to be just increase the peak. And I will do this one with everyone. A patient with ARDS is on the ventilator with the settings of 12 mLs per kilogram of the patient's tidal volume. And because it's ARDS, we're going to switch that to low tidal volumes from 6 to 12. So I'm taking the tidal volumes and I'm cutting them in half. Why do I do that? Because low tidal volumes improve survival. And what changes would I expect by doing the right thing? So I'm going to do this one for everyone. When I look at this question, I just take a deep breath. <sighs> I relax. I enjoy the question. And all it's saying is, look at my hand. I'm taking tidal volumes, this is an alveoli, that are 12. I'm cutting them in half. So what's going to happen to my alveoli when I cut my tidal volumes in half? It's not going to expand. It's going to what? Shrink. When your alveoli shrink, what is the medical word for an alveoli that's collapsed? It's called atelectasis. And if you have atelectasis, does that mean your lungs are going to be more compliant or less compliant? And the answer is less compliant. Think about blowing up the balloon, how hard it is to open it up in the beginning. So it's less compliant. And because the alveoli is collapsed, what happens to surface area? It gets smaller. And therefore, what happens to diffusion of oxygen? It decreases. So by doing the right thing and taking the tidal volumes and cutting them in half, I actually decrease compliance and I made the oxygenation worse. Now, do I want that to happen to my patients? That seems like a mean thing to do. So what can I do on the ventilator to counteract the effects of the decreased compliance and decreased oxygenation I gave by giving low tidal volumes? The answer is what? P positive and expiratory pressure. By giving PEEP, what happens to the alveoli? They pop open again. Therefore, what happens to compliance? It improves. What happens to surface area? It increases. What happens to oxygenation? It gets better. And with that being said, management of ARDS is a balance between low tidal volumes and PEEP. 
Ta-da! And there you go for ARDS. And there are going to be other things that we can do when we talk about advanced management of ARDS. These are not going to be highly tested on your board exams. So these are not. So you could think about ECMO, which is something we've done in some patients here with COVID. It's always a bridge to the next management. Definitely think about prone position, which has shown to actually decrease mortality, which is very important. And let me just say that paralytics initially had some great data when we talked about, hey, maybe we should have some mortality reduction. But now, follow-up studies have clearly shown that it does not reduce mortality and clearly that we should do it to help patients be more in synchronous with the ventilator. Does prone position decrease mortality in RDS? The answer is yes. We do it when the PF ratio is less than 150, less than 150. You don't need a rotoprone bed to do it. You know, during the pandemic, we did it the old-fashioned way to get these benefits. And no one RDS ventilator setting has been proven better. The key thing to do is always think about using low tidal volumes first. And this is going to be the peak and plateau pressures. Uh, peak pressure means that it's going to sound the ventilator saying it takes a lot of pressure to get the volume into the lung itself. And a plateau pressure is checking an end inspiratory pause. And the pattern you need to look for of peak and plateau is going to be if you have a high peak pressure and a normal to low plateau, it's a resistance, resistance, resistance problem. Think about mucus plugging, bronchospasm, biting on the tube, high peak, high plateau pressure. It's a compliance problem. Think about things like ARDS. And with that being said, when we talk about pulmonary nodules, everyone, remember that a pulmonary nodule, nodules are very, very common on the board exams and that most nodules are going to be benign in nature. And when we think about a nodule being malignant, it could be a primary or a metastatic. I gave very many examples of benign disease. And of course, when we talk about uh, granulomas, that if a nodule has calcifications on it, you could think that the calcifications are usually a better thing in the lung. I know it's bad to have calcifications in the breast, bad to have calcifications uh, on your thyroid, but in the lung and a nodule, it's not that bad to get calcifications. This is a harmatoma with popcorn calcifications. There are many things that look like nodules on imaging, but they're not nodules in reality. This is a pulmonary AVM right here. This looks like a mass, but it turned out to be pulmonary sequestration over here which is a congenital abnormality, not to worry about malignancy here. Rounded atelectasis looks like a nodule or mass, but it's just rounded atelectasis. Even this mass has lots of calcifications of pulmonary tuberculoma. You think for every nodule, the take-home message, everyone, is that the two key elements for every nodule is the history, history of smoking, older in age, previous malignancy will put you at high risk. The appearance of a nodule, of course, is the nodule speculated will be worrisome. Always remember the best first initial thing to do is always, always look at a previous image when we think about any nodule to see if it's there in the past, based on the history and the appearance of a nodule itself that you're going to put into one of these two categories. Is it low risk or high risk? Low risk means you have to follow up with imaging. Usually for most nodules, if they're low risk, we follow them up for two years. If they're going, uh, and in some cases where we may go up to five, but two years is going to be for most individuals, high risk, because they're high risk, we just can't, you know, do imaging, we definitely need to get tissue. How do we get tissue? Well, where is the nodule going to be located? Granted, we always present these nodules to a tumor board, but if they're going to be on the boards, if their nodules are peripheral in nature, you could think about a CT-guided biopsy. Central in nature, you could think about 
uh, doing a bronchoscopy and an EBUS. And of course, if they're high risk, you can't settle for a negative result. You have to go and maybe pursue an open lung biopsy in some of these cases. If they're an intermediate risk where they have some of these characteristics, you would think about maybe doing a PET scan in the lung. Please circle that the nodule has to be greater than 0.8 centimeters. It has to be greater than 0.8 centimeters if you want to proceed to do a PET scan. If the PET is positive, the PET is hot, then you would think about going ahead and getting some tissue. And remember, many things can give you a positive PET, things like infection, things like inflammation. So you always have to use your history, physical, and your clinical suspicion of. And unfortunately, I have a lot of questions I wish I had time to go over with you, but for time's sake, let me just go to my thank you slide at the end. Do, 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 do. Here's a summary and update. Consider biologic agents for moderate severe allergic asthma that's not publicly controlled with traditional medications. We talked about that. Consider antifibrotic meds for chronic fibrosing interstitial lung disease. Consider refusion therapy for massive pulmonary embolism. Thank you very much, Dr. Raj. We really appreciate you. Uh, I, just a couple of quick questions, if we can give the brief answers to them. Uh, one about, uh, uh, please comment about COVID-related hyperagulability and current recommendations. So we know that COVID is nasty. It clots in the artery. It clots in the vein. And more and more data is coming out about the role of anticoagulation. I would say that when I'm wearing my ICU hat, that is a must that we give appropriate anticoagulation. And definitely in the clinical sense, we have a scoring system that aids me on the level of anticoagulation that needs to be done. Uh, more data is coming out in the patients who are going to be our long haulers. Is there a role for antiplatelets? Is there a role for anticoagulants? We don't have that answer just yet. But like I said, things are always changing. COVID is always throwing us wild cards. So all of us have to be on our A game when it comes to COVID, especially with this Delta variant out there. Thank you. The second question, at what point can you check the D-dimer to guide therapy? After, is it after finishing three months? Of yeah, very good. So in uh, just mimicking what the study is, it was a heterogeneous population. And the theme is, is that I assume that most people don't want to be on lifelong anticoag because of all the things you worry about, intracerebral hemorrhage, GI bleed. So people may ask the question at some point, what is my chances of, of you know, uh, getting off lifelong anticoagulation? This could be done in some cases in the studies six months after, one year after, there's not really a set time that when they would think about it, they would still be on anticoagulation. In most cases, it was going to be Coumadin because this study was done when a majority of the patients were on Coumadin. And the main thing, as you know, is watching your diet, checking your INR. So that's when they had a majority of the patients in the study. But the answer is, it's not a set time. It's when they're ready to have that conversation with you as their primary care doctor about getting patients off of lifelong anticoag. And from the data we know now that's still changing is that do they agree to go on aspirin? Are they going to be a woman? And is their D-dimer normal? It's still not 100%. They still can clot. But these are some of the studies that were out there relevant for your board exams. Thank you so much, Dr. Raj. Appreciate you. Thank no you. problem. Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Brightigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.